going to ask you to open your Bibles to Genesis 45. That's going to be our launching point for this morning's teaching, which is going to be focused on an issue I haven't addressed in this way in eight or ten years, I would say, at least. Um, And that's the issue of the problem of evil. The problem of evil. Lots of philosophers have written about this over the years. This is one of the issues that most atheists think that they can really destroy Christianity with and so forth. And we're going to focus our attention upon it today. It's not a new problem. It's a problem that began back in the Garden of Eden. And it's going to be here until our Lord returns. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his wisdom. Holy Father, I do come to you and ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Each believer here this morning, fill us with your Spirit, I pray. And give us understanding so that we may discern what you intend to reveal to us in the Word on this crucial matter. You've addressed it in the Word but perhaps in a way that we did not expect or that many sinful people don't even like. But you have addressed it in a way. You've told us how to think about it. And so I pray that we'll see that clearly in your word today. If I had any doubts about this message, this morning's teaching in Sunday school and George's letter in our service have have made it clear to me that it was the right one for today. And I thank you for that confidence-building confirmation through your divine providence. Bless me now and help me to speak clearly. Help me to uh, have a clear mind. Help my memory and cognitive function to work right so that I I don't get confused while I'm speaking. We're so dependent on you, each one of us here, to work through us right now, and we ask that you will do so by your grace and for your glory and for our good, and we ask all this in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. As I've already hinted at, the problem of evil has been an issue that's been encountered by every single human being that has ever lived in this world. Whether it is viewed as a philosophical problem or an experiential problem, it's faced by all of us. And so I want to briefly outline those two ways that we face it, the philosophical and the experiential problem. Here's a, a basic summary of the philosophical problem, which, from a Christian point of view at least, is based upon four undeniable facts. One, God is supremely good and just. Two, God is all-knowing or omniscient. Three, God is all-powerful or omnipotent. And four, evil is in the world. Those are, from our point of view, undeniable facts. The problem that is proposed for Christians who agree with each of these four assumptions comes in pointing out the apparent, although we would argue not real, contradiction or inconsistency in asserting these attributes of God while facing the truth of the 
existence of evil in the world. For example, since evil exists in the world and God has the power to deal with it, then it is thought that he must not be truly good or else he would deal with it. These are the things that people challenge Christians with all the time. Or, since evil exists in the world and God is supremely good and just, then he must lack the power to deal with it, and in which case he wouldn't be omnipotent. Or, perhaps God is supremely good and has the power to deal with evil, but he either doesn't know about it or simply doesn't know how to deal with it, in which case he wouldn't be all-knowing or omniscient. These are the kinds of challenges that people pose for Christians. And see, and, and then they say, well, see, your, your view is just illogical. Of course, most of those people are atheists who have no basis for even telling you what evil is. We can at least explain to them why they ask this question. <laughs> they can't even tell us that much, right? Uh, <clears throat> the 18th century uh, philosopher David Hume, who sadly has been hugely impactful on the modern Western civilization in some ways, uh, he, he restated the problem as described really even earlier by an ancient Greek philosopher, Epicurus, and he set forth the problem of evil pretty succinctly by asking three questions about God. Is he willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? That's the way David Hume put it. And of course, he, he rejected God, the belief in God. But that, in a nutshell, is the philosophical problem of evil. How do you, how do you hang all these things together logically? It's an age-old problem with which philosophers and theologians have struggled for millennia. Uh, but even if many have not taken the time to think much about the problem of evil in this way as a philosophical problem, I doubt anyone has ever existed that hasn't dealt with it as an experiential problem. In fact, I know that no one has ever existed <laughs> who hasn't dealt with it as an experiential problem, at least to some extent. After all, the experiential problem of evil stares us in the face in one way or another every single day. John Frame has described the experiential problem of evil this way when he writes, for many today and throughout history, the problem of evil has represented the most serious objection to the Christian faith. And I've kind of outlined those objections already. Some very brilliant philosophers have thought that this problem conclusively refutes belief in the Christian God. But not only professors of philosophy, ordinary people too often feel this problem deeply. You don't have to be a sophisticated philosopher to doubt the reality of God when a loved one is going through terrible suffering. At such times, the problem of evil is not so much a learned argument as it is a simple cry of the heart. How could a loving God allow this? Many Christians have asked that question over the years. Does God give us an answer to this problem in Scripture, though, whether we consider it as a philosophical or an experiential problem? Does he give us an answer to it? Well, that's what I'd like for us to try to decipher this morning. Although we don't have time to examine all the pertinent passages of Scripture on the matter, I mean, after all, almost every page of Scripture in one way or another is dealing with this problem, right? Uh, I do hope to focus our attention upon a number of key texts that show us something about God's relationship to evil. And I think there are some key texts in the Bible. In fact, one whole book in the Old Testament, and, and in many ways, 
the Epistle of Romans and the New Testament are written specifically about this problem in a way. Um, I'd, I'd like to show us those key passages in the Bible that touch on this uh, issue uh, and I think a very clear way. And in, in the process, I hope to show what a biblical response to what the problem of evil really is, even if it's not the kind of answer that many would like or that many might suspect. Um, we're, we're first going to look at some key Old Testament passages, beginning in Genesis 45, which so will be our launching pad for our study. And then we'll look at some key New Testament texts. Looking at Old Testament passages, we're first going to look at Joseph's response to the evil of his brothers in selling him as a slave. In the account of Joseph, this issue of the problem of evil is actually addressed, in a way, uh, through the words of Joseph, who I think was speaking prophetically. In Genesis 45, verse 5, uh, we see something of his response. Genesis 45, verse 5, when he says, But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, speaking to his brothers who wickedly sold him into slavery in Egypt. Then he says this, For God sent me before you to preserve life. So he's, he's saying, in your evil action, God did a really good thing in sending me to Egypt. You wickedly sold me to slavery, but all the while God was sending me here to preserve life, their lives. This is reflected again later uh, when the psalmist in Psalm 105.17 reflects on it and says that God sent before them Joseph who was sold as a slave. So they're saying God was sovereignly in control of all of that somehow. Even the wicked actions of his brothers with a good intention. This is even more clear uh, when Joseph plainly acknowledges that through the evil actions of his brothers, God was working for his own good purposes. Uh, and he clearly saw God as sovereign even over the evil that they did. We've already seen that, but uh, he later asserts the same point even more forcefully. Later on in chapter 50, Genesis 50. Joseph you don't seem to be angry at God. Uh, our brother George was a good example of not being angry at God when you suffer. You don't even seem taking vengeance on his brothers, but we'll see in Genesis 50, beginning in verse 15, that his brothers thought he would take vengeance on them. It's the kind of thing, after all, that they would have done, right? Uh, beginning in Genesis 50, verse 15, we're told that when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. Apparently, they suspected that the only reason that Joseph hadn't taken vengeance on them was that Jacob was still alive. And that now their protection was gone. That seems to be what they were assuming anyway. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, Before your father died, he commanded saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for the evil they did to you. Now, or for they did evil to you. Now, he'd already forgiven them. <laughs> they, they perhaps just weren't believing it. But, And then they said, Now please, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. See how they're casting themselves here. We may have been evil and done wicked things to you, 
But remember, we're, we're servants of God too, right? Just like, just like Dad. Uh, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Uh, we don't know all the reasons he wept, but what he says next may indicate that one of the reasons he wept was that they still just didn't get it. It says, and his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Once again, Joseph acknowledges God's sovereign control over evil as a part of his own divine plan. He also clearly distinguishes between the evil intentions of his brothers and the good intentions of God, even in the very same act. This much Joseph understood, even if he could not explain to his brothers how it could be so. Apparently he knew that whatever else was true, he could not deny either God's sovereign control or his goodness. So, whatever our response to the problem of evil, we learn from our departed brother Joseph that it cannot be a denial of God's sovereign control even over evil events. Nor can it be to make God the author of sin in any way, which Joseph did not do. He blamed his brothers for the evil. Not God. So a proper response to the problem of evil always places the blame for sin upon wicked human beings and never upon God. And we will see this approach reinforced several more times as we journey through Scripture this morning. The next place in the Old Testament we're going to look is, uh, and we're going to take a rather lengthy look at Job's response to the evil against him and his interaction with God about that. Uh, if there's one book in the Bible devoted to wrestling at length with the problem of evil, it's got to be the book of Job. It's really all about this question. Uh, as many of you may remember, uh, the book uh, begins with God pointing Job out to Satan and permitting Satan to do evil against him. In fact, he permitted Satan to work both through natural disasters and through the instigation of evil acts by human beings against Job and his family. He even allowed Satan to destroy Job's family and all that Job possessed, as well as to bring eventually a terrible disease upon Job. Now with this background in mind, look with me at Job's response. We don't have time to go through and read all the things that happened to him. Most of us know what happened. It was terrible. All his children were killed. All of his possessions were destroyed uh, initially. And then in round two, God allowed him to attack Job directly with this terrible skin disease, whatever it was that he had. But after that initial wave of evil against Job, what was Job's response? Well, that's in chapter 1 of Job, verses 20 and 22. Job chapter 1, verses 20 and 22. Now think about what you might do if everyone in your family, except for your wife, by the grace of God, was killed, all your children, 
Everything you owned was gone. And in the process, of course, everybody thought you must be a horrible person for this to have happened to you and so forth. What would you do? How would you respond? Well, Job had said that there was no more righteous man on earth at the time, or God had said that about Job, and we'll see why right here. God had blessed Job. He had worked in his life graciously, and we see the result of it. In Job 1.20, it says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head. These were all signs of, of mourning. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it says, the author of Job tells us in this comment next, in all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So in, in saying, we know that Satan did this and that God permitted it, that all the wickedness was done by Satan, right? Job says, no matter who did all this, ultimately God's in charge. Ultimately, God has taken everything away from me. It wouldn't have happened had God not allowed it. He knows that. And he's right. We know he's right. We've read everything up to that point, right? So even though he had suffered many evils against himself, evils that, again, the reader knows that Satan was ultimately behind and that God had permitted, Job still didn't accuse God of any wrong. He clearly recognized that God is sovereign even over these evil things, and that they could not have happened except as a part of God's plan, but he also knows that this does not mean that God is to be blamed for the evil. So we again see that a response to the problem of evil must not rob God of his sovereignty over all things, whatever else we say about it. But neither may it accuse him of any evil. Rather, in responding to the problem of evil, we must acknowledge that God is sovereign over it and permits it as a part of his plan in such a way that he is never to be blamed for it. That's what we're seeing in both Joseph and Job. John Frame is helpful here when he observes that, quote, it would be nice to have a solution to the problem of evil, but not at any price. If the price we must pay is the very sovereignty of God, the faithful Christian must say that the price is too high. After all, it is of little importance whether any of us discovers the answer to the problem of evil. It is possible to live a long and happy and faithful life without an answer. I mean, Joseph did, for example, right? But he says it is all important that we worship the true God, the God of Scripture. Without him, human life is worth nothing. In other words, to give up the sovereignty of God is to give up God. The God of the Bible. The true God. Now, later on, Job does get upset with God. And he challenges God to explain himself. And if we're, starting, if we're bothered by that, we should be. Um, in fact, we might say that Job demands from God an answer to his own experiential problem of evil. This didn't seem fair to him, and he demands that God explain how it could be fair, right? Uh, we see examples of this in Job 10, later on in Job 10, verses 1 through 3. Job 10, verses 1 through 3. Job says, My soul loathes my life. 
he, he loved his life before, now he hates it, right? And then he says, I will give free course to my complaint. Not probably a good idea uh, to vent like this, but um, <clears throat> I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands? Because he knew that everything that, that was good in his life actually came from God. So he's saying here, you're despising the work of your own hands <laughs> here. He, see, he knew God had given him everything, remember. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. He was a good man in whom the God had worked. doesn't seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your own hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked. Whoa. There's a hidden accusation there. It's almost subtly saying, you seem to like what the wicked people have done to me. That's what means to smile on it. Right? Later on, it gets even more serious. In chapter 19... And I'm reading from the New King James Version. In chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. I wish we could read more of this, but I have to, I have to pick and choose here. Job 19, verses 6 and 7. And I think this is accurately translated. I think some translators don't like it translated this way for obvious reasons. It makes Job look pretty bad. But... Um, he says, know then that God has wronged me. Whoa. He hadn't said that up to now. And has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. Finally, Job is, God isn't fair. He's, he's pretty mad at God now. Uh, sadly, although he initially and correctly refused to blame God for the evil against him, the author of the book of Job made that very clear, remember. At this point, Job's suffering, grief, and anger got the best of him, didn't they? Before we're too hard on him, uh, just remember that any one of us who had gone through something similar would probably be tempted to do the same thing. And if we think we're better than Job, we're kidding ourselves, right? <laughs> If you've never been tempted ever to be angry with, with God, well, stick around. Your temptation might come. I mean, hopefully not. Hopefully we can learn from Job never to go there. Many Christians have never gone there. Our brother, Pastor George, wrote a letter this morning in which he refused to go there and be angry with God. And he acknowledged God some. He had the initial Job response, right? He didn't get sucked into this later bad response even though he's, he's dying of stage four cancer at the moment. We don't know how long he'll be with us. We hope for a long time because we hope God will put that in remission. What a good example he's been to the flock, though. Hmm? But he, initially, he refused to blame God for this evil against him. But now he's struggling. He's being tempted. But as we'll see, he's going to end up repenting of having said such things. He's going to acknowledge later that saying such things was actually sinful. 
First, however, let's notice one more brass statement that he made, and that's in chapter 31 later on, chapter 31, verses 35 through 37. And we need a feeling for just how deep the struggle Job is having here is. Job 31, beginning verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Now, he's prayed to God repeatedly, but he feels like God isn't listening. And that's why he's saying this. Here is my mark, oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. In other words, if God would just make clear to me what's going on here, I'd, I'd uh, challenge him. That's the idea. Uh, however, when God does manifest his presence to Job through a theophany, Job starts singing a different tune. He doesn't sound like this at all. No more brash statements are, are to be made. And God declares that it is not Job who's going to do the questioning, but that he himself is going to question Job. Let's take a look at God's confrontation of Job in order to see what I mean. We'll look at Job 38. A few more passages in Job, and then we're going to be leaping forward to the New Testament. In Job 38, verses 1 through 5, we're told that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind that had appeared, a theophany, right? And said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, the more you talk, Job, the more you don't make any sense. That's the kind of thing he's saying to Job. Who is this person that the more he speaks, the more nonsensical he is? That's basically what he's saying. And then he says to Job, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Here's the first question. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You know, Mr. Know-it-all, who thinks you can judge me, right? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Now, why is he saying that? There's irony, there's sarcasm here, but why is he putting it this way? Job has acted as though he has enough knowledge to judge God. And God's pointing out, no, you don't. Sure, you know, or who has stretched his line upon it? The line upon it, he says. So God does go on to speak of many of his great works, and he challenges Job to explain them or ask Job if he could have done them himself. In other words, God does not respond directly to Job's demand for an answer to the problem of evil. He basically says, who do you think you are to question me? I made everything, not you. I'm in control of everything, not you. Right? In fact, he rebukes Job for having demanded an answer from from him in the first place. Not only does he not answer the problem of evil question that Job has, he rebukes him for having asked it. Well, at least in the way that he asked it, right? Uh, I don't think God's rebuking any of us that wonder about it, right? I think he, he's going to rebuke any of us who thinks that we can sit in judgment on him on the matter. And that God somehow has to conform to what we think is rational. It makes sense to us as though we're the arbiters of such things and not him. 
That he rebukes. And that's what he's rebuking in Job. Listen to his challenge to Job later in, in chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. And then we're going to be getting on to Job's ultimate response. Job 40, verses 1 through 8. More of the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Because that's what's been happening. Job's been condemning God that he might be justified. He sinned greatly. But remember, uh, if you remember the, the account, Satan has said, I can get Job to curse you. I mean, renounce belief in you altogether. Job never did that. He doubted God's love toward him. He doubted God's justice because of the terrible things he went through. But he never cursed God. He never quit believing in God. Even though he seemed to take on some unbelieving attitudes, right? And then, of course, we read that if we read the rest of the account, that God goes on to challenge Job in much the same way that he'd already challenged him. But still, God didn't give an answer to the problem of evil. He never did give the answer that Job asked for. Once again, he just rebuked Job for his arrogance and demanding an accounting from him in the first place. John Frame is again very helpful when he writes, quote, this is hard to take. Like Job, we usually expect something else when we ask for an explanation of the problem of evil. This doesn't even seem like an explanation. It is more like the old gag line, shut up, he explained. But in this case, this is bitter medicine that we need to take. When we are faced with the problem of evil, we need to remind ourselves who we are and who God is. So what happened to Job, right? We are in no position to judge him. We have no right to demand an explanation from him. He is Lord. And that is our first answer to the problem of evil. He's God and we are not. But what is Job's final response when God rebukes him as he does a couple of times? How does he react after God rebukes him? Well, we'll take a look at this response before moving on to some New Testament passages. And this response is in Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. This is a way of reaffirming his belief in God's omnipotence, right? Uh, you asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Remember the visible signs of his grief before? Now he's going to show visible signs of his deep repentance. 
So in our response to the problem of evil, we must never forget that we're fallen creatures and that God does not owe us any explanation at all for what he does. Very often he explains to us what he's doing in the scriptures, but very often he does not. We need to learn the lesson of Job's life and of the book that bears his name, namely that God is deeply aware that we do struggle with the problem of evil and that he has chosen not to give us the kind of answer that we often think we need or wrongly think perhaps that we deserve. Instead, he expects us to trust him and to worship him on the basis of his previous works and revealed character, as Job had initially and correctly done, as we saw. He expects us to trust that he is good, even if we can't understand all that he's doing, right? The old saying, when you can't trust his hand, trust his heart. And when we become angry and begin to think that he owes us the kind of explanation that we think we need, then we need to do as Job did and repent of our sinful attitude towards him. Because it's always wrong to be angry at God. Since God can do no wrong that can ever justify being angry towards him. Many Christians are tempted, like Job, to be angry at God when things go really bad. And that is a sinful reaction, to be angry at God. One for which we must repent, as Job did. Well, now that we've interacted with some key Old Testament passages, let's turn our attention to the New Testament and to what I believe to be God's ultimate response to the problem of evil, his beloved son, Jesus Christ. We'll look at a couple of passages in Acts, and then we'll, then we'll shift into Romans. <clears throat> Spend a fair amount of time in Romans. First, uh, hear the way that Peter preached about the cross of Christ. He actually touches on this problem. It's in Acts 2, verses 22 to 24. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. In Acts 2.22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Well, this is one of those passages in Scripture where you see the sovereignty of God and human responsibility butting up to one another. And you see that whatever else is true, God's sovereignty does not rule out human responsibility. They fit together somehow in a way that Peter doesn't bother to explain. Because I don't think he knows the answer any more than Joseph did. Once again, though, we see that God intended good even through the most evil event that ever occurred. The murder of his one and only son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There was no more wicked event in history than that. And we're told it was according to the plan of God that these wicked people did this. Peter knew this, and he was very careful to attribute the evil to the lawless hands of the men who killed Jesus, even while he described the action as the fulfillment of God's divine plan. Now, how can that be the case, Peter? 
And then he gives us a long diatribe on how that's the No, no answer. That's just the way it is. Now, some people, because I want to be clear about this, get this a little bit wrong. They say, well, yeah, there's God's sovereignty and human responsibility here, and they're sort of equal in their eyes. Or, as the Arminian does, he makes human responsibility the main thing and human free will. And however we think of God's sovereignty, it's got to be under the umbrella of human freedom. No, that's backwards. <laughs> however we think of human freedom and human responsibility, it's got to be under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Right? That's what Peter's perspective was. Joseph's perspective was. Job's ultimate perspective was. That's the perspective of Scripture. But it doesn't explain how that can be so anywhere that I know of, and we'll see. I don't think there's an answer uh, to that. This is the same kind of an understanding that was reflected in a prayer of praise offered by the early Christians later in Acts 4. Acts 4, I'll be reading verses 27 through 30. Acts 4, 27 through 30. And they're praying, and in their prayer, they say this, For truly against your holy servant Jesus... The word holy there reminding us that Jesus didn't deserve what happened to him, right? Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all the people involved in killing Jesus, right? They were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Once again, God's predetermined sovereign plan is why this happened. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, these early Christians were suffering for their faith in Christ, but they did not blame God for the evil that was being done to them any more than they blamed him for the evil that had been done to Jesus. Even though they clearly saw these evil acts as a part of God's sovereign plan, Instead, they looked to the cross as an encouragement that God could work good through the evil that was being done to them, just as he had worked good through the evil that had been done to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we find that in a response to the problem of evil, it will not do to say that God has no control over it. For it is... God's sovereign, even over the evil things that happen in the world. There are numerous passages in Scripture that show that. We've seen some key ones. Nor may we imagine that those who commit evil are acting as if they're robots who cannot be held accountable for their sin. Everywhere, the sinners are held accountable for their sins. Their evil acts are a part of God's plan in such a way that those through whom the evil acts are committed are to be blamed, and God is never to be blamed. That's the way it is. That's the way things are presented in Scripture. And we also see again that in our response to evil, we must never forget that God works his own good purposes through it. And this encourages us that uh, even when we cannot see his good purpose, we can nevertheless be assured that he has one. The Apostle Paul embraced the same view as may be seen in his epistle to the Romans. We're going to read several passages there, and I'm going to try to move through them pretty quickly here. Beginning in Romans 3, verses 1 through 4. Romans 3, 1 through 4. Her inspired brother Paul wrote, 
What advantage then has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Which is, by the way, sin. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. Something Job had to remember, right? As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Whatever our response to the problem of evil, it must never call into question the righteousness of God. We must never forget that it is we who are sinners, as Paul goes on to make clear in verses 21 through 26 of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the laws revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, and he'll go on in chapter 4 to give an example of both, the law and the prophets from Abraham and David. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. It's talking about all those saints who were saved before Christ came and died on the cross. How is God just in passing over their sins? Paul's telling us this solves a part of the problem of evil from the Old Testament perspective. How could a just God, who never acquits the wicked, do just that? (laughs) Acquit the wicked repeatedly. Ah, it's because of what Christ did. It's because of what Christ did. And it says he did this to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when we consider the problem of evil, we must never forget that God himself is not untouched by it. Far from it. Indeed, we may say that God the Son has endured the effects of evil far more than any of us Christians ever will. So when we struggle with the problem of evil, we can be encouraged that God cares about it more than we ever could. Something, again, that Job in his struggles forgot for a bit and had to be reminded of. But, of course, for God, it is obviously no problem at all. For it is somehow a part of a great and good plan that he has for his own glory. When we're tempted to wonder, as Job did, whether or not God still loves us or is being fair with us, let's do as the early Christians did and turn our eyes to the cross. That's the ultimate answer that we get. I'm not going to explain to you the logical problem of evil. <laughs> that would be God's response. You don't get the, you're not going to get the answers you think you need or you might wrongly think you deserve. I'm going to tell you to look to the cross and trust me. That's our answer, ultimately. Paul goes on to admonish us in this regard in Romans 5, 1 through 5, when we encounter trials which are often sinful things that happen to us, right? Uh, 
In chapter 5, 1 through 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So Paul is saying here, you know, when you go through tribulations, and often tribulations mean wicked things are happening to us, right? Things sometimes like persecution, or things that are a result of evil in the world like cancer, or other illnesses. What's our response to be? What will glory in what God's doing, the good that God is doing, whatever other people's intentions are, as Joseph said, they intended it for evil, God intended it for good. Basically, Paul is saying, whatever's bad is happening, recognize God has good intentions, latch on to those intentions, and remember, this is all for your good. He goes on to say in Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those that are called according to his purpose, and he lists all kinds of terrible things that happen to believers there in that passage. When we consider the problem of evil, isn't it comforting to know that God is in control and will work even the evil things that happen to our ultimate good? That's what Paul calls us to do. And then later in chapter 9, which is the last passage we'll look at here in Romans, he kind of hits the problem of evil issue a little bit harder. He kind of anticipates the kind of objections that people have. And he gives the answer that we've really been getting all through Scripture, in a way, that Job got. In Romans 9, beginning in verse 14, Romans 9, 14 through 20 is where I'll be reading. What should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Remember in chapter 3, he ruled out that possibility. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So that it is not of him who wills, sorry Arminians, you're wrong about that. <laughs> so that it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, Paul's anticipating the objection of David Hume or somebody like him, right, in his day. Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Here's Paul's answer to that question under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? It's the Job answer. <laughs> it's exactly the Job answer. Uh, will the thing form say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? And for Paul, that's the end of the discussion. Just like we saw it wasn't Job. So we're back to the, shut up, he explained, answer. That is where I believe the Bible leaves us on the matter ultimately. Conclusion then, I believe the ultimate answer to the problem of evil is to say that, logically, we can give an answer. 
I'm not ashamed of that. Well, at least we can't give the kind of answer that philosophers seek, right? <laughs> or that people who are angry, get angry at God, often think they deserve. God simply doesn't give us the kind of an explanation that uh, philosophers like David Hume have been after. And he is under no obligation whatsoever to do so. So the real question for us is not, given that God truly is both supremely good and supremely powerful and all-knowing, the question for us in light of that isn't, as David Hume asked, whence then is evil? Rather, we must each ask ourselves, do I trust him? God's answer ultimately is, trust me. Look at all the reasons you have to trust me, Job. To the Christian, look at the reason you have to trust me. I gave my one and only son to deal with this problem. Trust me. That's his answer, ultimately. Can we bow before him and admit our ignorance and be content with what he has deemed necessary to be revealed to us in his wisdom? Can we accept what Moses taught the people of God so long ago in Deuteronomy 29.29? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are just certain things that God has not revealed to us. And if we think we deserve an answer, well then we are questioning his wisdom. we are suggesting by that he doesn't really know what he's doing. We're questioning his sovereignty. And we've seen how he responds to that. I would suggest to you that the logical answer to the problem of evil is among those things that God has not revealed to us. They're among the secret things of the Lord. I don't, it's not that there is no such answer. It's not, in my mind, that there is no logical answer to the problem of evil. It is simply that only God knows what it is, and he hasn't told us. That's my view. <laughs> Instead, he's repeatedly and lovingly assured us that he is omniscient, that he is omnipotent, that he is supremely good and just. He's also demonstrated to us that no one cares more about the problem of evil than he does. And he's asked us to trust him. And that is my answer to the problem of evil because I think it's the biblical answer. And so when unbelievers come to you and think they've got you caught in a conundrum, it's okay to say, well, I don't have an answer to that. But here's what I can do. I can at least explain to you, Mr. Atheist, why you're asking the question. You can't even do that much, logically. God's at least told me that much. And I don't have to have the answer to everything. And I don't have to be ashamed and not, ha not having it. I've asserted the existence of an infinite God. And we are finite beings. And if the God that I'm telling you exists, really exists, then we ought to run into lots of mysteries like this. <laughs> That's what we should expect. So it doesn't bother me that this is one of them. 
and you can ridicule me all you want as some kind of a ignoramus, and that's fine by me. As Dallas Holm once said, I'll be a fool for you, Jesus. That's just what I'd be crazy in love with God above, and that's all right with me. Let's pray. Holy Father, I hope that I've been helpful to my brothers and sisters in the Lord in dealing with this difficult issue. There really is no more important issue for any of us than this. And we see that revealed in Scripture clearly as you explain to us how sin came into the world and what you've done about it. And help us to leave here today uh, like the Job who initially responded in worship or perhaps some of us had been rebuked like he was and needed it and help us to, to leave like the repentant Job then. Only we know more than Job knew because we've had all the revelation about your son Jesus Christ and how he came to die for our sins and how he rose again that we might have everlasting life. Help us all to cling to Christ when we see the problem of evil. We've had a good example of that in the letter from Pastor George this morning of a person clinging to Christ when they face the problem of evil. And that's what we want to do too. It's what your word shows us that we must do. And for anyone here who's not yet come to know you as his or her Savior, it's our prayer that today you would do for that person what you've done for us. Open their eyes that they may see. Grant them faith and repentance that they too might find the ultimate answer to the problem of evil through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask these things for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. That was a big chunk of scripture today. Thank you so much for your kind attention as always.